Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 48, February 14th to February 20th, 1862. Last week, we spent the entire week in North Carolina with the Union capture of Roanoke Island. Shortly afterward, they would destroy the Mosquito Fleet, assembled by the Confederates, sealing the fate of the northern portion of the North Carolina coast to be in federal hands. This week, we're going to spend the whole time in one location yet again, but this time we need to finish off the captures of Fort Henry and Donaldson by Unconditional Surrender Grant. Before we get started, I just wanted to hopefully point out here that we have a new Patreon episode that will be dropping here shortly. That's going to be another movie review. This one is going to be uh, sort of like a, a little bit of a backtrack here. We're going to be doing the 1940 movie Santa Fe Trail, and this is supposedly depicting events before the Civil War, um, but it does have a lot of the future characters that will be in the Civil War. It has Errol Flynn, has Ronald Reagan in it as an actor, uh, which is uh, interesting to see. So we'll be posting that up on the Patreon feed here very shortly. So check that out if that's something that would interest you. Let's first remind everyone of the strategic situation following the capture of Fort Henry. Fort Henry, combined with Donaldson, were potential staging points for a Confederate invasion of Kentucky. We can say that they were part of the defensive line in the latter stages of 1861 that began to unravel at Mill Springs. The fortifications also protected any approach to Nashville. Now, I feel like we talked about how a city like Richmond is important to the Southern War effort, but we should also talk about larger cities like Nashville, which had munitions factories that would be important to the Confederate forces in the West, especially in terms of acquiring arms and ammunition, of course. Don Carlos Buell was given the task of moving to close the doors of those facilities for good, but he was moving cautiously from his position in central Kentucky. Henry Halleck had unleashed Grant, though he was reluctant at first to let his subordinate take a shot at the rebel works. Fort Henry had fallen relatively easily, proving Halleck wrong. Halleck, of course, is influenced by Grant's reputation as aggressive and a drunkard. After the battle, he will start to undermine Grant, threatened by the general's growing popularity, something that Grant will not find out until years after the fact. Which is interesting when you look into that there. He doesn't know where these rumors are coming from, and he sort of thinks that Halleck, while not entirely on his side, is certainly not the one who is spreading the rumors, uh, but he's going to find that out later down the line here. At least for the moment, Halleck cautiously supports Grant and his plans. 
Remember, too, that no one wants to be responsible for the next Union field disaster. With Henry in Union hands, Grant would turn his attention to the second fort, this one on the Cumberland River. We have already introduced many of our major figures during this campaign, but I do want to take a little pause and mention two more. The first is the Chief of Engineers under Grant, James McPherson. McPherson is on the shortlist for greatest meteoric rise during the Civil War. James Bird C. McPherson was born in Ohio in 1828. I have seen some hubbub about the name pronunciation and how it is actually McPherson, and his middle name is actually pronounced Birdsey, where it's spelled bird's eye. Uh, but I mean, come on, bird's eye. What an awesome middle name uh, that you have right there. A young James would be forced to help provide for his family uh, before an appointment to West Point. It was at the military academy where he was placed in the same class as Philip Sheridan and John Bell Hood, among others. After graduating, McPherson would serve in the Army as an engineer where he would help to design the fortification that would become Alcatraz in San Francisco, as well as Fort Delaware, which we talked about during our segment on prisoner of war camps. The Ohio native would rise all the way to become a corps commander before meeting his demise in the campaign for Atlanta later in the war. For those of you who are from or have been to Washington, D.C. and taken the metro system, this is the individual for which McPherson Square is named for, fun fact. The second person I want to mention is the naval commander of the USS Carondelet at Fort Donelson, Henry Walk. Walk was actually born in Virginia, joining the Navy in the 1820s. He will participate in the war with Mexico before the Civil War. And he's going to actually serve the remainder of the Civil War in the Western Theater and even continue in the Navy after hostilities had ended. Now Grant has under his command the three divisions already mentioned in the Fort Henry episode in C.F. Smith, John McClernand, and Lou Wallace. In total, he will have over 15,000 men. The Confederates had 21,000 with reinforcements arriving as well as the men from the recently captured Fort Henry. Command of the defense was originally given to BGT Beauregard, but the hero of Manassas and Sumter had fallen ill and would be unable to lead. Instead, the most senior officer was our friend John Floyd. We have already seen how Henry Wise fared post-Western Virginia. Now, let's take a look at his rival and fellow Virginian. So for timeline's sake, Fort Henry falls on February 5th. 2,500 Confederates would escape to Fort Donelson with Albert Sidney Johnson sending reinforcements to bolster the command there. As we have mentioned, Johnson knew that if the fort was to fall, then Middle Tennessee would likely go to the Federals as well. 
He held a council of war, ordering a withdrawal from Bowling Green by troops under William J. Hardee. Grant would make the overly optimistic claim that he would have Donaldson by February 8th. On paper, this might have been a simple task, as they were only 12 miles apart. But in reality, this was a little over the top for many reasons, not including the already mentioned fact that the position at Donaldson was more formidable. There would be no overwhelming advantage for the Union gunboats, as Fort Henry had been. The position is 100 feet above the water and contained a full battery for protection. Weather would also be a huge factor against Grant getting things going. Remember, the river was swelling, which would create problems in navigating Foote's western flotilla onto the Cumberland River, and winter conditions would make the travel on the roadways difficult for the ground troops. Still, Grant would hold a council of war and lay out his plan for potentially assaulting the Confederates. All but one general would agree, that naysayer being John McClernand. If you recall, I mentioned that Grant would not get along with the political appointee from Illinois. I think it is telling that moving forward in these campaigns, Grant would not hold councils of war, perhaps ruined by this experience, perhaps not. We see examples of councils of war throughout the conflict spurned by wanting genuine input on the part of subordinates or perhaps even indecision. I think it can maybe speak to Grant's character as well as his command style where these were deemed unnecessary. Two divisions under Smith and the already mentioned McClernand would move out and approach the rebels with Lew Wallace's men remaining behind. Confederate defenses were laid out with Fort Donelson to the west, anchoring the right flank. The city of Dover would anchor the left flank with earthworks in between. February 12th would see the Union Army getting into position. Commanding the Confederates at this stage was Simon B. Buckner. The two other senior commanders, Floyd and Pellow, were not present on the 12th. Buckner having been told not to bring on a general engagement, making the Union march much easier, despite some minor delaying action by Colonel Nathan Bedford Forrest and his cavalry. By the next day, the pieces were all set on the board. Grant had received a reputation as an aggressive general, and rightfully so, I think considering the previous actions we have witnessed thus far in our narrative. Setting up with Smith checking the Confederate right, and McClernand checking the Confederate left, the Federals would launch a series of probing attacks on the rebels. Commander Henry Walk would steam his vessel forward in order to test the defenses on the Cumberland River. There had been firing on the fort from the previous day to announce the arrival of the Navy. The USS Carondelet would take fire and casualties while also inflicting some on the shore battery. The bombardment would be combined with pressure from C.F. Smith and his men on the left flank of the Federals. Smith's men would have a general advance on the works of Buckner, despite there being orders not to bring on a battle by Grant. Overall, the attacks would gain little, but it would be able to keep the feet of Simon Bolivar Buckner to the fire, so to speak, even into the night. 
John McClernand would launch an attack that was not ordered by Grant with less than stellar results on the opposite flank. This reason being is that McClernand was taking fire from Confederate artillery. These attacks would do little once again due to well-stationed abattis and rebel cannon fire. In one of the more gruesome episodes of the war, fires ignited by artillery would result in the deaths of wounded men in the field. Reportedly, during this action, on the right, Colonel Forrest would shoot and kill a member of Bridge's Western Sharpshooters, who had taken a position in the wooded terrain. Grant would come to the conclusion that his 3rd Division would be needed, and so send for Lew Wallace to march his men from Fort Henry. Temperatures would drop to 12 degrees during the night of the 13th, which saw both sides still locked in a stalemate. Oddly enough, we have a situation where the Union Army suffered from lack of supplies. Many of the soldiers did not have proper winter clothing and equipment. Many had discarded overcoats they had received on the tough march overland to Fort Donelson. This would make for uncomfortable times during the night. It was during the 13th that Floyd, the commanding officer, arrives on the scene for the rebel forces along with reinforcements and cheers for the defenders. On the 14th of February, there would be two key events in the battle for Fort Donelson. The first is that the Confederates would decide that something had to be done. John Floyd called his own council of war, and the conclusion was reached that a breakout needed to be attempted. If they were able to punch a hole in the Union right flank, then they could potentially open up the road back to Nashville. There, the Confederates could potentially regroup at a new defensive position that would be more favorable and better for resupply. But you might actually ask, why was this necessary? And the reason for that is that the federal forces have set up to the south of Fort Donelson. It sort of may think that if they're federal forces, they're probably coming from the north, right? But uh, because Grant cuts overland, he has now effectively sealed off the south to Fort Donaldson. So that's where Nashville is. So obviously there would be problems then in resupplying the fort. To lead the assault would be Gideon Pellow. Pellow was a good choice for this maneuver as he was much like Grant in that he was an aggressive commander. But in the moment where the Southerners were ready to launch their plan, Pella lost his nerve. Skirmishing had been conducted along the line, and a sharpshooter had killed a member of Pella's staff. This led the Tennessee general to call off the attack, coming to the conclusion that the Federals were aware of what they were going to attempt. Secondly, Foote would move his ships forward and engage the Confederate defenses. Grant had an idea that Foote might be able to steam past the Confederate battery, which might have been more effective, as they could turn and tear up the rebel defenses. They would confirm the hard way that Fort Donelson was stronger than the previous Fort Henry. Firing would commence at longer ranges, because the Confederates, in a similar move to, say, like Kingdom of Heaven, had marked ranges in the trees along the river. Each of the ironclads would receive multiple direct hits, 
the USS St. Louis, 59, and Carondelet, 54, leading the way. The success rate of the Confederate fire was an amazing 50% during the naval engagement. If we think about basketball, 50% shooting from the field in basketball is considered good, and that's that's above average for the NBA uh, these days, uh, which is a little bit less than 50%. It's more like 45%, somewhere in that range. And I'm just going to go out on the limb here and say that the firing of an 1860s artillery piece at a moving target on a river is probably more difficult than shooting a basketball into a basketball hoop. Uh, I know that's controversial, and uh, I'm ready for the letters, but that's the hill that I'm going to die on. Under this withering fire, the USS St. Louis, which was Foote's flagship, the Carondelet, along with the USS Louisville and Pittsburgh, would take on much in terms of damage. A Union naval officer wrote, that the men could not fire the guns without slipping on blood, despite the floor being well sanded. Foote would be wounded, oddly enough, in his foot during the action. Overall, the assault lasted only an hour and a half before the Federal vessels withdrew. The Confederates sustained no casualties, while the Union Navy lost 8 killed and 44 wounded. Union infantry could hear the cheers from the rebels at their successful repulse of the flotilla. At this point, Grant realized that a siege might potentially be called for to slowly choke the Confederates out. Despite the aborted attempt for a breakout on the 14th, that same plan was slated for a second attempt on the 15th. Floyd and his officers knew that their luck against the Western Flotilla might not keep holding up. Gideon Pella would again lead the assault on the Federal right, taking on John McClernand. Oddly enough, this was a good time to try to force a way open to Nashville. General Grant had gone to have a conference with Admiral Foote, leaving no instructions for which officer would take the command in his absence. At dawn, the rebels would launch their assault. Pillow's men would be followed up by Buckner, who would secure the rear of the Confederates as they headed out toward Nashville. The 30th Tennessee would draw the task of remaining behind in Fort Donaldson's defenses, facing off against an entire division in C.F. Smith. The 30th, already seeing that numerical disadvantage, would also be disadvantaged in that they are mostly armed with shotguns as opposed to the field muskets of C.F. Smith's men. Pello's attack would see great success and push McClernand's forces back despite losing the element of surprise. Union troops were remaining awake in an attempt to keep warm, thus they were ready for the assault. Colonel Forrest would conduct a flanking maneuver, which sealed the opening success. It's actually here that we start to see uh, Forrest make a name for himself. Uh, it's actually going to be post-battle sort of uh, negative in that a lot of these officers in the Confederate ranks are going to be sort of uh, ostracized to a degree because of their, well, spoiler alert, failure here. But Forrest 
is going to dismount his cavalry and fight as infantry in a very aggressive manner. So he's going to start to build up his reputation at this battle, and he's going to engage the Union forces uh, with his men dismounted. The objective of the assault originally on the very extreme federal right was a position called Dudley's Hill. So this is around where most of the action is taking place. Now, on Dudley's Hill are stationed Illinois troops under John MacArthur. MacArthur does do a good job in buying enough time for McClernand to reassemble his forces and make sure that he is ready for a more organized defense. Actually, MacArthur's men would run out of ammunition, so that's how long they're spending holding off this Confederate attack. MacArthur's men would actually suffer some 429 casualties as a result of his stand. Now, the 1st and 2nd Brigade under McClernand would also suffer heavy losses, the 1st Brigade under Richard Oglesby losing 853 men. John Blackjack Logan would actually be wounded, him commanding the 31st Illinois during this engagement, uh, but he's able to also sort of stem the tide of the Confederate attack. McClernand's line is actually being rolled up and being pushed back toward Lew Wallace, who has set up his men in the center. William H.W. Wallace and his brigade would also suffer some 547 casualties as a result of the rebel attack. So much pressure was put onto McClernand that he would send word to Lil Wallace begging for reinforcements, but Wallace was hesitant to send them without orders. It was not until a staff officer pleaded in tears before he would move his men to aid the right flank. Wallace's brigades under Thayer and Cruft would stabilize the situation, but it was not all their doing that stopped the Confederate advance. In fact, there's actually a friendly fire incident between some Illinois regiments that at one point almost spells disaster for the Union defense. But the Confederate attack had actually stopped. Gideon Pello grew concerned that Buckner was not advancing with his forces. Despite Forrest urging Bushrod Johnson, probably rightfully so, that an all-out assault would see the Southerners accomplish their breakout goal. There would be arguments among the generals, eventually decided by Floyd, who would agree with Pellow's assessment of the situation. Pellow would move his men back into their defensive positions in order to regroup, leaving all the ground gained back to the Federals. Continued Confederate attacks on Thayer and Cruft would prove ineffective. Grant had returned to the field in the afternoon and displayed his calm under pressure. It was reported that the Confederate troops carried knapsacks and three days rations, something that indicated a breakout and not simply trying to win the field. Grant realized that this meant most likely the Confederate right flank was lightly defended. He turned to C.F. Smith, and when asked if he would take Donelson, the older general replied simply, I will do it. 
the 30th Tennessee held out as long as possible before being forced from their outer works. It must actually be said that being armed with those shotguns and even flintlock muskets, they do probably as well as they could have done facing two full brigades from C.F. Smith. C.F. Smith actually orders his men to advance with their muskets loaded but uncapped so they don't stop and fire their weapons. Eventually, men from the 2nd Iowa plant colors on the earthworks, but C.F. Smith is not able to fully exploit this breakthrough because there's not really enough daylight left to continue his assault. Darkness would in fact probably be the only reason that Donaldson does not fall into Union hands on the 15th. Many of the wounded left on the field would freeze to death during the cold winter night. On the flip side of that, there is also a pretty famous incident where I believe a Union officer is wounded on the field, and because of the freezing conditions, it actually saves his life. If it had been warmer, then he probably would have bled out with the lack of medical attention, but because it is so cold, he is able to survive the night long enough to be picked up in the morning where he's then given the proper medical attention. Floyd and Pello would claim a great victory, but the reality was that Smith would be able to easily crumble up the right flank in the morning. Grant had been able to right the ship just in time. February 16th would see the surrender of the Confederate forces. Gideon Pello and John Floyd would both fear capture by the Federals and escape. Floyd is actually concerned because, remember, he was the Secretary of War prior to the outbreak of hostilities, so he thinks he's going to be uh, executed as a result of his actions prior to the war. And we did talk about how he does allocate resources to the southern states so it could be easily on hand for a rebellion. Nathan Bedford Forrest was disgusted by the decision to give up and led a breakout of his own. Other Confederate troops would take their chances. Buckner would be left to surrender the troops on his own. Now Grant actually knew Buckner, Buckner having lent Grant money before the war. Because of this, he was expecting to receive good terms for the surrender, but Grant would earn his nickname giving the reply, no terms except unconditional and immediate surrender can be accepted. I propose to move immediately upon your works. Buckner would be forced to accept these terms, surrendering and having his men pile their arms at the historic Dover Hotel. The two generals would actually remain friends despite the surrender. Buckner would be a pallbearer at Grant's funeral. Overall, the Union casualties were 2,691, 570s being killed, 1,976 wounded. The Confederates would see 327 killed, 1,217 wounded, but also 12,000 captured, along with key supplies and 48 pieces of artillery. This would be the largest capture by any U.S. Army officer up until this point.
It would also be a crushing blow to Tennessee, opening the way to Nashville, while also seeing the continued rise of Ulysses S. Grant. That should do it for this week. We have a full episode of Fort Donaldson, the fall of which will open Central Tennessee to Union invasion and force Albert Sidney Johnson to regroup. Henry Halleck is actually going to soon push for C.F. Smith to replace Grant, and he's also going to be seeking a promotion for himself from George B. McClellan uh, as a result of the action. Grant would essentially be placed under arrest after the battle, oddly enough. Next week, we will set up the Pea Ridge campaign and fight the first battle in New Mexico. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Post it in the description should be a link to the website, Patreon, as well as Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show would be greatly appreciated. Once again, feedback is welcome. Any kind of questions, comments, concerns, the email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week. <laughs>